Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian Nor. This is episode 120, the league leaders of the Big Five. Uh, so across Europe, we've got some good title races developing. There's a few surprise packages as well. You know, good start to the European season. We are one month away from the start of the World Cup. And the next four weeks are going to be huge in terms of shaking out this initial first half of the season and how everything is rolling out. And then obviously, when everyone comes back, it's going to be a total sprint to see who can finish and win the title. So around Europe, we've got teams that are doing well, some that I'm sure a lot of people are pulling for to maybe finish out and establish a new dynasty, a new winner. But overall, we have to start in Spain with El Clásico. The least surprising that Real Madrid and Barcelona were both sharing top spot at the start of the day. So nothing really brand new happening in Spain. And it's been incredible to see the way Barcelona's season has trickled through, right? At the very starting from the summer, there has been a lot of chatter about what Barcelona are going to do, how they're going to cope with their financial situation, right? We called them Levers FC over the summer. We know that they mortgaged their future, sold an enormous amount of assets that are club assets that bring revenue down the line, sort of sold a part of their soul to Spotify. So it's been an interesting start. And everyone felt, well, okay, Xavi was brought in. He improved things at the end of last season. Now with a roided-out squad of top-level players and all the everything they could have wanted, they're going to be great. But things have stagnated. I mean, you're still seeing Sergi Busquets in the midfield. You're still seeing Jared Piquet come into the back line here and there and make a mistake in the Champions League. You still have Eric Garcia, who I don't think I've heard a single person, whether it's a pundit, podcaster, fan, say they understand why Eric Garcia is playing center back. I I, I can't really explain it either. Um there's something that a lot of coaches like about him. He plays for Luis Enrique for Spain, so I don't know. But overall, in this match, Barcelona were not able to use this virtuous cycle of bringing in good players, will win games, will attract attention, and be top again. No, because they were beaten pretty soundly by Real Madrid. Barcelona could not cope in the midfield with Luka Modric and Toni Kroos. And... Aurelian Chouameni. Now, this is the funny thing is Casemiro leaves and everyone thought, oh, it's going to change the dynamic. No, not really. Honestly, because I think Modric and Kroos were the were the two best players of that trident, right? I think Casemiro was important. He was a foil. But in some ways, maybe a little overrated in terms of what he truly brought to the table. When you see the way Modric and Kroos were knocking the ball around, dribbling by people at guys as guys in their mid-30s, you just saw a certain level of energy, know-how, and class that Barcelona in their midfield could not deal with. Many people feel Gavi should have started for Barcelona to give them energy. Look, I honestly don't think that this Barcelona team currently has the just the necessary tools to be able to win difficult games. If they are not able to tee up Robert Lewandowski and Dembele is not on fire and Rafinha is not putting things together, if, the, if things are not just simply clicking and, and functioning really well, you see them struggle and you see them start to lack ideas. I mean, the amount of time that they give Duval to Dembele and just watch him just dribble down the sideline is concerning. If you're Barcelona, you're like, where are your top-level midfielders? Seeing Frankie de Jong play some games at center back just because he's good at playing out 
is a little bit disappointing. That guy is a very good ball-carrying, driving eight, right, central midfielder who can go and get himself in the box. I don't know if Xavi really has settled on his best team yet. I don't know if he's really decided on what the weaknesses are that he needs to cover up in certain games. To me, Jules Koundé seemed like a better option than Sergio Roberto on the right-hand side against Vinicius Jr., but it's also Vinicius Jr., who would probably tear up either one of them anyway. But you could see their high line, Barcelona, was it was very inappropriately high in, in uh, when they were out of possession for the first goal. Tony Cruz is able to just take a few touches, wander through, and everyone in the Barcelona back line sort of halts for a second, waiting to maybe catch Vinicius offside. It didn't seem like there was a clear plan. They all sort of waited. The ball goes through, and then it's Vinicius is through. Doesn't score his initial shot. Benzema puts in the rebound. The next goal, Eric Garcia strangely goes to head a ball that he knows he's not actually going to put in a direction that's ideal. He knows he's just going to get something on it to flick it, which you should not do as a defender. If all you're going to do is help the ball continue to go forward, you probably shouldn't be heading it. Allow someone who's behind you to deal with it a little bit better. But that was one small mistake. And then Federico Valverde scores an absolutely terrific shot from the top of the box. It's... Seemed like he hit it with the inside of his foot, but that it was incredibly powerful as well. I love the energy he brings to this team. And he was, in my opinion, man of the match from what I saw. Luka Modric t- comes really close behind. Kareem Benzema should have scored. Uh, should have He scored a goal. It should have actually counted because he shouldn't have been offside in the first place. He got himself way wide. This was for the – this would have been 3-0 and really would have put the game just completely out of reach. I think Barcelona wouldn't have even made – a late surge like they did at the end of the game. And it's it's amazing because Benzema he's, he's on the far side, wide open. He's about 2 yards off and he does not need to be. He could be 5 yards back and he would still have the same advantage in the play because he just was able to take it down and dribble straight through, straight to the middle. Had a terrific finish with his left foot in off the post. In the end, it doesn't count because he was offside. And then Barcelona were able to generate a little bit of energy at the end. Ansu Fati coming on, making a lot of people wonder, why is he not playing as much? Why is he not starting games? Why is it Rafinha and Dembele? They get themselves a goal. They get themselves back into it. And then there is the penalty at the end. So there were two penalty incidents in this game. Robert Lewandowski going over uh, off of a slight contact. I think a lot of people felt he was already going down, kind of chucked himself. And a lot of pundits and people said, yeah, I'm fine with that not being a penalty. Same. Now, the Eric Garcia one on Rodrigo at the end, there are a lot of people talking about, well, he clips him, he gets him, you can see he steps on his foot. The thing is that Rodrigo is still able to finish the step he's taking and then pick both feet up into the air as he jumps before hitting the floor. I would argue that that means not enough contact was going to bring him down. He could have kept playing if he wanted to easily. Same as Lewandowski could have probably stayed on his feet and gone for the ball if he wanted to. So to me, those two arguments sound the same. Look, I'm on the fence about them. I think if either one is given a penalty, you understand why. If either one is waved away, I would say you understand why and you move on as well. I don't think there would have been a huge amount of clamor for the penalty on Rodrigo to be given if it had not been, really. So, I mean, I know it wasn't and then they went back to it, but I, I don't. I think that most people would have accepted that one. 
So on we go. I mean, Barcelona, it feels as if uh, they're going in the wrong direction. It feels like Real Madrid are going in the complete opposite, correct direction. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti keeps this team taking over. They're all about efficiency. They win games by controlling them and by using their talent where they need to. They never really looked uh, uncomfortable, Real Madrid, in this game, aside from a small bit of pressure at the end, as I said. But, you know, this is this is a wild time. Real Madrid are champions of Europe, champions of Spain, and we want a title race here. But Barcelona could have everything. Their season essentially in a state of disappointment as early as the end of October here. We could be at Halloween, and it's the frightening situation for Barcelona where they're out of the Champions League, they're six to eight points behind in the title race going into the World Cup break. And how do they regroup? What do they do? Is Xavi the right man for the job? This is what starts to become asked when you bring out statistics like Xavi's win percentage and his record after 50 games is worse than everyone since Valverde. Well, it starts to make you wonder, right? Look, I think Barcelona will correct a lot of their season. I think they have absolutely the players to continue to stay in the title race. But this was a clear marker that Real Madrid are currently better and are still the dominant force in Spain, as usual. And they didn't even have to get Kylian Mbappe to do that. Speaking of Kylian Mbappe, all right, we're going to move on to France because PSG won 1-0 against Marseille after a week of complete and total turmoil off the pitch um, for the Parisians. Look, Marseille have gotten off to a good start this season. They've got Igor Tudor, the um, Croatian, ex-Croatian player, manager. He's uh, he's in there, and I, I, he's bringing a lot to the table in terms of making Marseille a little bit more of a rigid machine. They know that they need to be winning pretty much every single game outside of the PSG game to have a shot at winning the title. You know, you lose to PSG, but you win the rest of your matches, you're going to be right on their tail because they might make a mistake here or there. So they've been close. They've been they were three points behind them at the start of the day, and then Kylian Mbappe sets up Neymar one nil. Game ends that way, and although it was tight, and I think PSG were really put to the test, they managed to get through. Kylian Mbappe after he scores the goal celebrates very happy with Neymar, and this is the thing that's strange is that this morning we get reports that Kylian Mbappe has said all of the stuff about me leaving and wanting to go is a lie. Really? After a whole week of all the reporters throughout Europe corroborating information, saying, yeah, this is what's going on, it's done, the, they're finished, they're looking for a solution as early as January, Liverpool are looking to buy him. I mean, it was a pretty crazy week as far as Mbappe rumors, and he never came out and said specifically anything at all. PSG didn't. No one came out and said anything definitive about this. It was just the media had picked up on what they felt they knew, sources getting information from different people. Vroom. <laughs> the news goes out to everybody that Kylian Mbappe is leaving in January. And now this morning he says, all oh, that's untrue. It's drama. It's constant, constant drama at PSG. And is is the drama actually happening in the dressing room on the daily the way the press makes it out to be? Clearly not. I mean, recently we heard Ender Herrera talking about the situation. He spoke to ESPN uh, FC and they asked him, what do you think? What do you think about what's going on there? And he was like, the press always says that there's drama every day. And like, I was in that locker room and it's not like that. Okay. Is the truth somewhere in between? Maybe, but it's definitely not the insanity that the press has you feel. The question is, what is really going on? I mean, Mbappe signs an absolutely massive contract that gets the whole world talking about how over the top it is right at the end of the summer. 
when he was a free agent and he could have gone to Real Madrid. Now, all of a sudden, what, two months later, he's regretting it? It's just bizarre. It doesn't make a whole ton of sense. No one really knows the amount of power that he's been, quote-unquote, given at PSG. He's been given the tool, the keys to the city, the club. He gets to make final decisions. Whatever it is, I don't fully understand it. All I know is that right now, there's not going to be much getting in their way to win the French title. Again, it's going to be a Champions League run. Right now, Lorient are the surprise package in France, sitting in second. Marseille, look, they, they could do a Lille. They could, they, they could push PSG, but they have to really win every single game. Lyon, Lille, they're really not in the picture right now. Lens has been fun, and Lorient as well, but these are not two teams that are going to stick with it the whole way. It's got to be Marseille. So good luck to Igor Tudor and his guys. And, I mean, the question with PSG is what's going to happen over the next 12 months, right? So the Qataris invested heavily into the club right around the time that they were going to be, right around the time that they'd made their World Cup bid and knew they were going to get it. And this was all part of the strategy to, to, to grow the idea of the game, to grow the presence that the Qataris had in the game. A lot of people wonder what's going to happen when the World Cup is over, right? Is the is the circus going to leave town, right? There is, a, there is this big question that will the Qataris say, okay, look, this has been a nice business model that has grown for us for a little bit now. Let's transition to something else. Maybe we'll keep the club. Maybe we'll sell the club. I have no idea what they're going to do. But also look at the personnel, the players. If Kylian Mbappe leaves, if Leo Messi runs out his contract and he goes, all of a sudden that era of all these big-name players coming in, you know, there was Ibrahimovic, there was Cavani, there was Di Maria. There were all these massive names along with the major ones we've had lately. Once they all start to dissipate, is Neymar the only one left? And if so, does that make a team that is actually more functional to win the Champions League? It'll be interesting to see how PSG go over the next 12 months, but I would imagine there's a big, big rebuild and transition year coming at some point, whether it's next season or the year after, something huge is going to change at that club. All right, on to the big surprise in the Bundesliga. This is great. I mean... We've all been waiting for Borussia Dortmund to be the main challengers to Bayern Munich because when you look around the league, you go, yeah, who else? I mean, Freiburg have been interesting lately, and München Gladbach just continue to get disappointing, and Leipzig just aren't the same ever since Nagelsmann left. But this season, we have another fantastic story in Germany. It's it's cool. There's always good teams just popping up in Germany, having an amazing season. You hear about all these players that you'd never knew about before or some that you'd heard about a few years earlier as they were going to be some big potential and then they disappear and then bang, here they are for some German club, top of the table, surprising everybody. Union Berlin stay at the top after beating Borussia Dortmund, the team that everyone's hoping will challenge Bayern Munich. Well, it seems like they are going to struggle with that this season. And I have to say, Borussia Dortmund were unbelievably charitable. This is not a match that you look at the score, you go 2-0, you're like, wow, Union went out there and they just beat them. Yeah, well... Take a look at the first goal of this game. It is a goalkeeping error of the most amateurish, possibly. It's it's the most amateurish thing I've seen from a goalkeeper in a week, actually. Every single week you see these situations where a goalkeeper gets the ball, they lose focus, they swing, they miss, they take a horrible touch, they allow the ball into their goal, they play a pass straight to an, an opponent. It's frustrating. And I'm not the one here saying goalkeepers should not play out from the back. They should not use their feet. I think that's that's mindless. 
But it's the mistakes that some of them are making that are just so galling. It's like, dude, just because you have time does not mean you can be lazy because you will be punished for being lazy and making a single solitary mistake. You have to be sharp. Take a look at this. It's phenomenal. They end up getting the 2-0 win. But what's cool about Union Berlin is really their story because <clears throat> Hertha Berlin are the main Berlin powerhouse. They have been for years and years, but also because they're more on the west side of Berlin. Union is in the east part of Berlin, very far so, actually. Their stadium is actually not even – there is in the city limits, but it's in the forest. Uh, and basically Union being in East Berlin, being based there, they were – frozen out after the second world war they they rebranded in 61 to become union berlin and during the cold war they were on the other side of the wall and were not a part of the main german football pyramid and so in 1990 is actually when they were able to come back in and like i said they've been in the shadow of heretha for a long time but now they have their day that stadium um it's called the stadion under alten forestere so i'm i'm assuming out at the stadium that's out in the forest. <laughs> but what a rad atmosphere they create. Their fans are raucous. I was watching their uh, Europa League game that they played. I forget who they were playing. They were away. Anyway, they threw a flare on the field. There was a massive explosion. It was it was pretty wild. Uh, and the dudes were all in these, like, white white and red baklavas. They had their the stockings over their head, faces. I mean, these fans looked pretty intimidating. It was pretty cool. Um, I, I like I like stories like this. Clubs that find a way that start to to build and and then and are very 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 key, just a key part of the community. They're rooted into their town and into their neighborhood or whatever. And it's just nice to see this kind of energy coming out of a team. I, I will say this: check out uh, Outside Right, and that's right as in to write W R I T E Outside Right podcast. Um, he did an episode talking to Kit Holden, who wrote a book about the club, about the history of Union Berlin. I listened to that episode, thought, thought it was great. Haven't been able to get a copy of this book yet, but I will. And I hopefully can bring um, both, actually, the outside right guy and also uh, Kit Holden on as guests because I do think that it would be really interesting. But it's cool to see Union Berlin doing so well, top of the table. Of course, look, Bayern Munich played against Freiburg. This was, what, third versus second or whatever. And Bayern Munich won 5 nil. So we know that Bayern Munich, they have what it takes to put together a crazy run. But a lot of people have pointed out as well, in a lot of games last season where they were doing okay or average or they were under the cosh, sometimes it would just be one or two Robert Lewandowski goals 10 minutes before halftime, and they're up 2 nil or up 2-1 in a match that they were not good. And then they would go on to win 5-1. Without Lewandowski, is this going to be a season where no one really is able to just paper over the cracks on a day where they are not playing well. And this leaves the door open for somebody. Can Union Berlin really go the distance? That would be a Leicester-style story. It really would. That would be incredible. So, hey, why not hope for it? All right, another surprising league leader. It's Arsenal in the Premier League. Four points clear, looking very, very good, and... Look, just nobody expects them to be at that in that position in May. No one, because everyone expects it to be Manchester City. Liverpool was the other team. They've had such a rough start to the season, though they did just beat City this weekend. That I think most people are pretty convinced Liverpool will not be able to mount a title challenge. Yes, they've recovered large point 
you know, deficits before. The way they are playing, I just see them struggling in certain games this season and, and really finishing in the top four, but having to fight for it. I think Man City, if they can avoid games where they just can't figure it out, can't score, if they can avoid, you know, more than a couple of those this season and Erling Holland stays fit, I just think they'll score enough goals against most of the teams throughout the season that they will be tough to keep up with. Now, Arsenal are doing everything they need to to be in that position. They're ahead right now, and they need to just keep moving, winning games one at a time. That's the only thing you can do. No one's going to truly believe in Arsenal until Arsenal are actually close. It's kind of like when Leicester won the title. And you get those vibes right now from Arsenal. Young team, you know, manager who people have made a lot of jokes about recently. They kind of have their own way of looking at him. But all of a sudden, he's got this team going in the right direction. And they just keep getting wins. At what point does that end? Well, for Leicester, we all thought, oh, by Christmas, they'll start to fall apart. The Christmas period is going to be difficult. They're going to run into some difficulties there, lose some games, drop points. And they didn't. They just kept on winning. And then all of a sudden, you're getting to... April, and you're like, oh my God, if they just win four or five more, they win the title. This is real. Is that what it's going to be like for Arsenal? Possibly. But Arteta, the building redone, the rebuild he has done since he took over, I think has been very, very impressive because he took over after Unai Emery was, was sacked. And this is right around the same time that Frank Lampard took over at Chelsea. And so there was a, a good measuring stick between the two. In the end, Arteta won the uh, FA Cup that year against Frank Lampard's Chelsea. And that was an important time. Aubameyang scoring the goals. Then the next season, they had him sign the contract. They had him stick around, and it did not work. Ozil had already been shown the door. Aubameyang soon followed. So getting certain veterans out, getting rid of Burn Leno, bringing in Aaron Ramsdale, and then keeping someone like Granit Xhaka, who everyone thought was going to be forced out. Situation with the fans deteriorated. But... Though he was stripped of the captaincy, he's now been kept around, and he has a really, really big influence. Then you got Martin Odegaard as captain, right? This is a kid who, at 16 years old, was signed by Real Madrid, and everyone thought, okay, this is going to be the next big star. His development's taken time, but yeah, I mean, he was 16 when everyone knew about him, so it had to take time, and he's looking great. Then you've got the signings that were brought in, Zinchenko, Gabriel Jesus. I mean, th- these are quality recruitments that came in. So far, really like what I've seen from Fabio Vieira as well. So, you know, I think the, the signings have been good. The players that have been pushed out have been good. And, you know, all of Arteta's weird idiosyncrasies that everyone was dunking on him for after seeing the All or Nothing series are not looking that dumb now. Yeah, Obama Young did say, look, he's got a bunch of young players, and so it's easy for them to just do what he says. Well, good. Arteta needs that right now. He does not need someone standing in his way. Older players or veterans trying to convince young players that there's a different way that they could be doing this. They need one simple, functional way of attacking and defending and playing. They will sort of take that and create an identity that is super strong and run with it. That's what we've seen so far. Bukayo Saka, probably the main star, but Martinelli's been great as well. I mean, it's been excellent to watch. So, look, I'm liking seeing Arsenal back in the conversation, not just being a laughing stock. It's... It's nice to see. It really is nice to see. I know that Arsenal were very lucky to beat Leeds this weekend. There was also the whole thing, controversy, where the VAR truck wasn't connecting to the referees, so the game had to start 40 minutes later. And in the end, Arsenal benefited massively from VAR. Gabriel avoiding being sent off late in the game for something that, well, could have gone either way. 
But look, they're doing what they need to do, Arsenal. Are they giving you those Leicester 2015, 2016 vibes? We'll see. I guess you just, the thing is you just can't make a, make a call on that until you get late in the season. I do still think City are going to be the title winners because they're so well-equipped and it's a Guardiola team. But Arsenal have been very impressive. However, they have not been as impressive as the league leaders in Italy. Napoli are ahead of the Calcio in Serie A. They are they're just playing amazing. They're scoring goals for fun. And with guys like Zielinski, Osimen, Anguisa, Raspadori, Chucky Lozano, Gio Simeone, and of course, Kvicha, Kvaratskelia. This team is so exciting. They're so much fun to watch. And I love that, that Spalletti finally has just been like, that's it. We've got this unit. It's clicking. We're scoring goals. Osiman needs to stay fit this whole season. He's had a lot of weird injuries, some of which are very, very unlucky. I think he got hit in the eye socket last year, and that kept him out for a few months. He's, it's not the guy who's just got a bunch of muscle injuries, right? He's had some strange ones that have kept him out. And so if they can keep him, Kvaratskhelia, I mean, goodness me, this guy dropped out of absolutely nowhere. I'd never heard of him before this season, but he is lights out box office, one of the best players you can watch in Europe at the moment. The way he dribbles, he roasted Trent Alexander-Arnold quite quite seriously. And look, they can make a deep run in the Champions League. I think that would be great for them. But I think winning Serie A has to be the real hope for Napoli at this point. Because in the years when Juve were walking to the title every season, the only time there was really any kind of a fight put up was from was from Napoli. You have to remember the season Gonzalo Higain was there when they had uh, Maurizio Sarri as the manager. Last year, they were, I mean, with three, four weeks to go, there were people saying, look, I've got them as favorites to get them to win the games that they need to. So they've been close multiple times. And ah, it'd be really nice to see this club get that level of, just get to that level, win a title. We've had Inter and AC Milan win titles that have broken the Juve uh, dynasty. It'd be nice to see another team get in there. I mean, the, the way that they're playing in Europe right now, they thrashed Ajax. They destroyed, destroyed Liverpool in probably one of the most impressive matches of the season. And they've already beaten Lazio and Juve and AC Milan in the league this season. Sterner tests are coming. They've got Roma's, they've got uh, Jose Mourinho's Roma next week. And look, they have to still look over their shoulder. Atalanta are also unbeaten with them. Right now, Napoli have eight wins, two draws, no losses. Napoli have seven wins, three draws, no losses. So they're just a point, there's just two points behind. AC Milan are only three points back. So it's definitely still tight. But with Juve in turmoil, with Inter Milan, you know, having won six, lost four in the league, they're they're kind of all over the place, have not really been able to put that consistency together. Who are, gonna, who are the main title challengers going to be for them? At the moment, it's Atalanta and AC Milan. Roma are not too far out of the picture, but can they sustain that? Atalanta, we, we really don't know. I think it's it's surprising that, that they are right back in it this season. But Napoli have to be, I think, really in a lot of ways, a neutral's hope to win Serie A because it's, it's a great story. And the way they're playing, how can you not want a team like this to just go on rake in the goals and have an in-style league victory and one that would just inspire the city of Naples beyond? I mean, these guys would be gods in that town. So that would be really, really cool. 
yeah, I mean, the next four weeks are, are huge for all these clubs, for all these players. Uh, the World Cup is coming. It's very, very soon. It's, you know, it's bizarre to be sitting in mid-October and going, the World Cup's a month away. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see more players drop out due to injury. Unfortunately, N'Golo Kante seems to be out for France. I don't think they'll have Pogba either. So, wow, what does that mean for the French midfield at the World Cup? Uh, Reese James is looks to be definitely he looks very much out for for England. Eight weeks out, they're saying he's saying I can hopefully try and get back in the squad in the next four weeks. I doubt it. Kyle Walker went into surgery. I'm not sure if he's going to be available for the World Cup. Does this mean Trent actually gets to go to the World Cup and start? Wow, that would be something. Richarlison just recently getting injured. It's Antonio Conte says he should be back for the World Cup, but. You know, this is this is a tough, scary time. And I think for any player, they go out there and they're professionals. They're going to do the best they can. But at what point is it starting to play into their minds? Like, dude, if I roll my ankle, that's it. Just roll my ankle and tweak a ligament, not even tear one. I'm out for like four to six weeks and like I'm not going to play at the World Cup. So we're in that very bizarre stage right now where everyone's going to be nervous about it. And as the leagues go into this into that break, where's everyone going to be sitting? Because the second half of the season, it's going to be a weird all-out sprint from January to May. Lots of games, lots of fixtures, and a lot of points to be fought for on the table. So we will see. Can these current league leaders close out where they are currently at? We will see. Thanks for tuning in. This is Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. Much love, everybody.